Hi, everybody, and welcome back to True Time this week. Today's episode is going to be a little bit of a different format than usual. I'm actually going to be reading short stories that I found off of Reddit. I thought it'd be something unique and a little bit different, so let's get into it. Monday, everybody. Hello, everyone, and happy beginning of your week. If you are maybe a new listener, my name is Avery. And I'm Dylan. I realize we haven't introduced ourselves in a while. And if you're new here, hello, welcome. We're excited to have you. If you're coming back, thank you so much for listening to us again. We appreciate it so much. Yeah, we really do. Maybe that is something we should integrate in, though. Saying our names every time. I know. I can't believe it's already going to be March next week. I know. This month has really gone by fast. Be coming up on like five months of doing the podcast. Ooh. I know. It's crazy. Dang, that is insane. It feels like it has not been that long. (laughs) No, I remember setting up our account like it feels like like a couple weeks ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm it's looking at getting like 10 downloads and being like, whoa. <laughs> I know, it's super exciting. We had the idea about mid-September and everything came to life on like October 1st, I think it was. Yeah, we, we got it done pretty quick. The intro and everything. So we've been going strong, mm-hmm. navigating a lot of new things, but I've been having a lot of fun and yeah, can't wait to f- grow even more. Yeah, make sure you guys are sharing with family and friends that you think's interested and yeah, try to keep growing this podcast. Mm-hmm. We don't want to stop anytime soon, so no, let's keep it going. <laughs> All right. Well, as I mentioned, this week's case is a different format because mm-hmm. it's not just one case. I'm going to be reading three short stories that I found posted on unresolved murders on reddit Mm -hmm. and they all kind of have a theme they're all kind of similar and i just thought it'd be interesting to talk about the advancement of dna technology okay and how they've helped solved a lot of cold cases that's pretty cool yeah so if you're ready i will start with the first story i'm ready okay So this first story is called DNA Technology Helps Identify Serial Killer Who Killed At Least Four Women in Oregon and Utah in the 1980s, posted by Unsolved243. So they said, DNA technology helped investigators identify a serial killer who killed three women in Eugene, Oregon in the late 1980s. The man was identified as John Charles Bolsinger. He had already been connected and convicted of a murder in Utah in 1980. This is a quote. Bolsinger was arrested for murder in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1980 and ultimately served a five-year prison sentence before being paroled to Springfield, Oregon on March 7, 1986, end quote, according to police. He only served five years for a murder? Yeah, that's terrible. (laughs) 
Dang. I know. It's so different from the way it is now. Yeah. Within months of his release, two women were killed. On June 5th, 1986, 62-year-old Gladys May Hensley was found murdered in her High Street apartment. It was believed that she was killed early in the morning on June 4th. Two weeks later, on June 19th, 1986, 33-year-old Janice Marie Dickinson was found murdered behind a car dealership on Coburg Road. She was naked and had been sexually assaulted. Although police at the time suspected that Gladys and Janice's cases were connected, they were unable to identify a suspect. Nearly two years later, on February 28, 1988, 73-year-old Geraldine Spencer Tuohy was found murdered in her home on Franklin Boulevard. There was evidence of forced entry and she had been sexually assaulted. Police believe that her murder was connected to Gladys and Janice's, but again, they had no suspect. In 2000, DNA testing linked Gladys, Janice, and Geraldine's murder to each other. Several persons of interest were ruled out through DNA testing. In 2016, Parabon Nanolabs created a composite of the killer through his DNA. The company next used genetic genealogy to help with the case. They were able to identify four potential suspects. Detectives eventually were able to identify Bolsinger as the likely killer. Looking into Bolsinger's background, they discovered that he had been arrested for burglary in nearby Springfield on September 26, 1986 just a few months after Janice's murder. In that case, the female victim said she saw Bolsinger peering through her kitchen window. He opened the window and she went to call 911. He tried to pull the phone from her hand, but she struck him with it and a flashlight. He then fled, leaving behind a vest and a knife. Bolsinger was arrested in the burglary case, convicted, and sentenced to five years in prison. However, he was released in December of 1987. Which is only Gosh, a few he keeps months. getting some short sentences. I know. Yeah, it says less than two months later, Geraldine was murdered. One month after her murder, on March 23, 1988, Bolsinger committed suicide in his apartment in Eugene. He was 31. Investigators are looking into his activities in the late 1970s and 1980s to see if any other crimes are connected to him. Interestingly, this is the second serial killer from the 1980s who was posthumously identified through DNA in the past week. That was from the article that mm. they were writing from. But the other was Joe Michael Irvin. So just interesting how this guy kept getting in and getting out, and every time he got out in such short spans, he committed a murder. Yeah, no, that that's insane how short his, like, he would just go to jail for, five-year sentences and not even be there the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> He'd be I know. there for like months. Mm-hmm. What was it the first time? Did he actually go the whole five years? Or? It sounded like it the first time, but the other few were like in month intervals and every time he got out, he murdered a woman. Yeah, that's that's terrible. But it is like interesting to see how. They can tie it to him now. Yeah, and now that they know who it was. And they can connect all these murders. Because I know that's been a very big topic in true crime is a lot of murders from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and early 90s. Still, so many of the killers are unidentified, but most likely they're all connected. Yeah. 
but they just can't pin down the person. So it's been interesting how over the past few years, like they discover who one person was and that they have a long list of people they murdered. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's pretty awesome now that we have the technology to even go back, not only like do it, use this technology for today's like murders and cases and stuff, but also to go back like 30, 40, 50 years and solve things from that long ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. All right. Are you ready for the second story? Yes, I guess so. Okay. So this was titled Girls Murder, the oldest cold case in Pennsylvania solved with DNA and genealogy records. And this was posted by Big Mata. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's usernames are unique on Reddit. (laughs) (laughs) So authorities on Thursday revealed the man they say raped and murdered a nine-year-old girl closing Pennsylvania's oldest cold case with the help of DNA and genealogy records. James Paul Forte, or Forte, I'm not sure, killed Maurice Ann Chivarella almost 58 years ago in Hazel Township, Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. And the police confirmed that at a news conference. Forte died in 1980 and cannot be tried, quote, However, he is the person who committed this crime, end quote, Lieutenant Devin Brutowski said at a news conference. Quote, we are not under the impression this is the only crime he committed, end quote. It is the state's oldest cold case and the fourth oldest cold case in the country to be solved using genetic genealogy, troopers said. Members of Chivarella's family were at the news conference and spoke of finally seeing justice. For years, when the family sat down for dinner and said grace, Maurice's mother would pray for Jesus to help Pennsylvania State Police find the man who hurt her daughter, Ronald Chivarella, Maurice's oldest brother, said. The news conference included the generations of troopers that have worked the case over the decades and a young genealogy expert who helped work the case for free. The current lead investigator, State Police Corporal Mike Barron, became emotional as he discussed how important the news is for the Chivarella family, investigators, and the Hazleton community. He said, quote, this was a violent and heinous crime that was committed against a small child, end quote. End quote. We're always told not to get attached to a case, but you can't help it. It's a vivid memory for everybody who lived through this, and it's a vivid memory for everybody who grew up in this area. You were told by a grandparent, a parent, an aunt, an uncle, this is Maurice's story. What happened to her ushered in a change in this community, end quote. And the background of her murder is that she left her home in Hazleton on March 18, 1964, taking canned goods to the church on her way to school, but she never made it home. Does it say how old she was? Um, she was nine. Oh, okay. Yeah. She was last seen by a family member that morning at 8.10 a.m. near 6 and Church Street. Chivarella's body was found later that day, two and a half miles away in Hazel Township. Police said she had been brutally beaten, raped, and strangled. The canned goods she was taking to church were found with her body. Damn. It's horrific. 
and it's probably like a small town like way back when oh for sure and you said in pennsylvania mm-hmm. yeah that was for sure probably like a little small town yeah you wouldn't think about i mean your child getting hurt no just walking to school you can you can literally <laughs> i feel like back then you could just leave your doors open and unlocked and let your kids run around everywhere without worrying about them yeah i mean it sounded like from stories i've ever heard that they did like times yeah. were very different yeah that's that's so sad it's heartbreaking so forte the murderer lived on 14th street about six or seven blocks from Chivarella and her family oh my god and troopers said the girl's family did not know him one of the Case's original investigators said the Forte name was also not known to him. So nobody even knew who he was, but he was just living near them all. Over the decades, investigators received numerous tips, numerous leads, but none panned out. The first 40 years of the investigation was old-fashioned police work, Brutowski said. We have moved in a different direction as we got into DNA evidence. In 2007, a lab developed a suspect profile from DNA found on Chivarella's jacket. The DNA profile was checked monthly since then, Trooper said. In 2019, Parabon Nanolabs used GEDmatch and found a very distant genealogical match to the suspect, a sixth cousin, according to Brutowski. A year later, state police and the Luzerne County District Attorney Office began working with 18-year-old Eric Schubert of ES Genealogy. Schubert, now a 20-year-old student at Elizabethtown College in Lancaster, has spent years working on genealogy and worked with police pro bono to crack the Chivarella case. Schubert on Thursday said he was home sick a lot as a child and began working with genealogy at the age of 10. Oh, damn. Yeah, very interesting. He had already solved two previous cold cases before he joined the Chivarella case. Gosh. And he's only 18. (laughs) The genealogy search led police to a New Jersey State police captain who connected investigators with a family member who kept records of the family tree. Investigators interviewed numerous people, searched records, and acquired many DNA samples before narrowing down the pool of suspects to four people. Eventually, the search pointed to Forte. His body was exhumed this January, and on February 3rd, state police learned his DNA matched the DNA profile from the girl's jacket. Forte was arrested in 1974 for a sexual assault in Hazel Township, but state police said they cannot find the police report on the incident. Troopers interviewed that victim, and she said it was a very violent encounter where the woman believes she could have been killed during the assault. Forte pleaded guilty to aggravated assault and was given one year of probation in that case, Barron said. And that's it for that case. Yeah, that that is really sad. But that's I want to learn more about that kid that's solving these cases. I know. Like 18 years old. Let me see. He I sounds like Batman just sitting in the background... I don't know, solving crimes. <laughs> yeah, Eric Schubert. Very interesting. Or more like a Sherlock Holmes, I guess. Yeah, he's been doing this since he was 10. That's insane. Yeah. ES Genealogy is where he works. And he did that case for free. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. I mean, at 18th to help solve 
the fourth oldest cold case in the country. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's very interesting how this family like sees justice, but it, they're also grown. Like the people in the family weren't even necessarily born. Yeah. At the time, like the older family members, but like some of the younger kids and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's insane. But it's so sad. That little girl was so young. Yeah. So something interesting that I learned about while reading about all the DNA and genealogy technology and everything was that there is a organization called the DNA Doe Project. And this is, I'm pretty sure it's a nonprofit, but um, they solve cold cases. Mm -hmm. So I went on their website and their website is dnadoeproject.org and I just copied over their like kind of homepage, their mission kind of statement. Mm -hmm. So about them, they said, quote, the DNA Doe Project is an exciting new initiative that uses genetic genealogy to identify John and Jane Doe's. We have become a go-to organization for law enforcement agencies and medical examiners across the country, helping them solve their most intractable cases. Our innovative DDP fund program allows smaller and less well-funded agencies to take advantage of our services. We have had amazing successes, even with cases where the DNA was highly degraded or of low quantity. We are an all-volunteer organization that has attracted some of the best genetic genealogists in the industry, all working towards the common goal of reuniting John and Jane Doe's with their families. That's awesome. Yeah. So their mission is to help identify nameless victims. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was super interesting. So the last story I found is one of their stories, one of their cases they worked on. Okay. There's been a lot of cases you've done, though, where it takes a while to figure out who those people are. Mm -hmm. What was that one in South Carolina or something? Oh, that was something we read on our own. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We've looked yeah. at Reddit before and <laughs> read some of these stories, but yeah. Okay. It can take years, and there's still some of the biggest true crime cases the women and men in them are still unidentified. Yeah, that's just crazy to me. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sorry. Go with your story. No, you're good. So this story was titled, Marion Flathead County, Montana, John Doe, identified by DDP, and this was posted by Puzzleworth. The Flathead County Sheriff's Office announced on Monday, February 7th, 2022, that in collaboration with the DNA Doe Project, they had identified a man found dead in 2003 as Stephen Edward Gooch of Washington State. Gooch had last been seen in 1995 when he was 29 years old, and he was reported missing the next year. He is estimated to have died in 1995 or 1996. The investigation into his death is still ongoing. But for some background... On October 26, 2003, hunters in the northwest Montana town of Marion made a gruesome discovery. A ragged duffel bag containing a .22 caliber pistol lay atop a remote bridge. Below lay a human skull. 
Police from the Flathead County Sheriff's Office arrived and located further remains, as well as a knife, a shoe, a pair of sunglasses, an electronic handheld poker game, a bottle of Aleve pain relief pills, bullets, and a holster for the pistol, scraps of a paperback novel, and a water bottle. That's a lot. Yeah. The state medical examiner performed an autopsy on the body, which investigators nicknamed Cliff for the location of its discovery. The exam found the bones had likely belonged to a Caucasian male aged 21 to 36 and about 5'7", 170 centimeters tall, who had died from trauma to the right side of his head. Whether the trauma came from falling from the cliff or from a bullet wound was unclear. His manner of death was officially marked inconclusive. From there, the investigation into the man slowly went cold. His pistol was possibly the biggest clue in the case. Through its serial number, the .22 caliber Smith & Wesson 433 was tracked to a man living in Utah. He said he had pawned it around 1994 during a divorce and provided the names of pawn shops that might have handled it. The pawn shops did not have records of the gun. However, investigators later cleared the man as a suspect. Other items found with the body had been sold across the country, making it impossible to pin down Cliff's geographic origin. In 2004, a team from the University of Montana produced a clay reconstruction of the man's face. One last lead, a missing ranch hand who had reassembled the reconstruction, did not pan out. The case went cold and did not heat up for over a decade. That all changed in 2018. That year, a new technique called forensic genetic genealogy burst into the spotlight with the arrest of the Golden State Killer. Combining modern genetic science and traditional pen and paper genealogy, investigators in that case had built a massive family tree of the serial killer's genetic relatives, then narrowed down possible identities until they found a match. Newspapers and sites around the world were abuzz with the arrest, including in Montana. Flathead County Coroner Shelley Zeberg immediately thought of the man lying nameless in the sheriff's office. After making some calls, she submitted the case to the DNA Doe Project, where his DNA sample was compared to public databases. Cliff, now called Marion Flathead County John Doe, proved to be a challenge. His genetic matches were remote, around the third or fourth cousin level, all descended from a couple who had lived in early 19th century Kentucky. But that was where the real work started. The couple had at least 10 children and possibly dozens of grandchildren. Goodness gracious. I know. But in those times, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Early 19th century. Mm. Meaning that by the time Cliff was born around 1950 to 1965, they could have tens of thousands of living descendants. Holy cow. Saying how families can grow that vastly. Just rabbits out there could all be related to people you know and you just have no clue. Strange. <laughs> In an effort to narrow it down, the DNA Doe Project released surnames of families across Appalachia and Indiana who could be close kin to him. From Harlan County, Kentucky, Sailor, Hilton, Brock, and Blanton from Hannock County, Tennessee, 
Green, Epperson, Seals, and Trent, and from Montgomery County, Indiana, Ward, Lynn, and Barrett. So those are like surnames that they're looking for of people who could be related to him. Okay. People with these surnames were asked to make their family trees public. And with the most recent developments, in January of 2022, after three years of genetic genealogy, the DNA Doe Project located several people with a very close match to Cliff. The Flathead County Sheriff reached out to one man who told them that his son, Stephen Edward Gooch, had last contacted the family in 1995 when he contacted them from San Diego. Stephen mentioned possibly traveling to Las Vegas next. His family reported him missing the next year after months without contact. That lined up perfectly with John Doe's estimated date of death. A DNA comparison confirmed the parent-child relationship. Dang, that's insane. Mm-hmm. The last note is that the Flathead County Sheriff's Office is still investigating his death. If you have any information about Stephen Gooch or how he came to die on a cliff on Red Gate Road in Marion, please call the FCSO Detectives Division. So he would just like travel around the states? And- yeah. Kind of just sound like he backpacked around and they clearly think there's foul play involved. Mm-hmm. So but they were able to identify him and his family was able to almost, how many years is that? 1995 to 2022? Uh, 27 years? Yeah. That's insane. Of just not knowing where your child is. Mm-hmm. That's so sad. Yeah. That, oh, that's a weird death though. Like you're just traveling around. I mean, it seems like it could be an accident. Yeah. But if they are calling it inconclusive, they don't have enough evidence to just yeah. roll it as an accident. Or That's pretty awesome, though, that they were able to at least identify him mm-hmm. and like, let his family know. Yeah. But then I feel like the hardest part now is trying to figure out what happened to I him. I know. Because he's out imagine. in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a very... No witnesses. ...secluded location. Yeah, I don't know. But I guess having someone's name, you can start investigating them and their backgrounds. Yeah. Because, you know, he said he called his family from San Diego, mm-hmm. but you have no idea. It's 1995. Like, I feel like tracking people and calling from pay phones or something, you just wouldn't know. It's not the same way you can truly tell someone's location now. Yeah. Yeah. So, very interesting. That is really cool. Yeah. So, those are the three stories, all with their... DNA technology advancements and how they've either become solved or partially solved. Yeah. It's really cool. There's like a whole another world of like missing people and unknown suspects. That yeah, we don't really do cases on that. Yeah. Because like in a podcast, people usually want a resolved situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually is more interesting like catching the killer and stuff but it's pretty cool to see the other side of uh how many unsolved cases there are and what's being done to help help solve these uh cases yeah and the dna doe project is just like a really cool website like i'm on it right now and you can you know submit cases they have pending cases that they are working on and like the pictures 
are of what they think these people would look like. Oh, wow. Some of them are like photo edited to kind of look like them. Yeah. Some, if they don't have enough information to go off, it's just a silhouette of a person. But they also look like they do a lot of clay models. It's very interesting to look. But they have pending cases that they're getting ready to work on. They have their active cases that they're actually working on right now. And then they have their success stories as well. And you can donate. You can see where they've been in the news. And they have all about their organization. So it's a really cool website and just like a really cool resource when not every police office or sheriff's office has the technology or yeah. the money because this is expensive for sure. Oh, yeah, especially with how new new this stuff is. It's mm-hmm. still being developed. Yeah, that, like anything like that. It probably takes a lot of man hours. Probably takes a lot of resources. So, yeah, that's pretty sure. awesome that they do all this for, what do you say, like organizations that don't have the money or just yeah. police departments or mm-hmm. pretty much anyone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really it's crazy. Cool. Yeah. So that was our Reddit short story episode. If you liked us reading short stories, let us know. You could always submit short stories or if you want a theme with the short stories maybe in the future, also let us know. We can do other stories and anything like that. Yeah. Should we move on to the question of the day? Sounds good to me. All right. You made it this time. so Yeah. So we're trying to come up with a question along the lines of what's become a daily essential a product like you really could not live without anymore in your life (laughs) so go dylan oh okay i mean that's a pretty solid one (laughs) i would hope it's always been an essential in your life (laughs) uh all right so i'd say mine was has come into my life pretty recently it's blessed onto me during the christmas time (laughs) Uh, mine, well, I would have to be the, uh, Theragun, the pro. Oh. Theragun, pro. Pro. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so it's just the massage gun helps definitely at night usually is when I use it whenever we're getting ready for bed and like whether we're reading or something, I just feel like sort of stiff. I'll just use it real quick before bed. And I feel like it wakes up my muscles, like gets blood flow to the regions where it feels tight. Just makes me more comfortable before I go to bed, especially after we usually work out pretty soon before going to bed. So I feel like that's nice to get some blood flow to the region before going to sleep. And why is your Theragun Pro different from other massage guns? Well, I mean, it has like a stronger force or like uh like it has a longer travel so it has a stronger force so it's stronger and i you know i like really deep massage like deep tissue massages so i wanted something like really strong you know cause pain but make me feel good at the same time (laughs) (laughs) and then also uh it has a bunch of different um like heads so you can change out for specific regions of your body and Battery life is really good. I like the way it's uh, like the ergonomics of it. 
it's set up really nice. And then it also has an app, which I haven't even started using. Hmm. But because I'm not really sure what the point of the app is. Don't, I like, don't know. Use it for 10 minutes a day. Like, yeah, I, I know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't you know why to, that helps me. <laughs> have to look into it. I don't know. Maybe it does something cool. We have no idea. Yeah, I'll have to look into it. But yeah. Nice. And they've been around for a long time. So it's a well-known brand. They have a lot of, at stake to make a good quality product. So <laughs> nice, yeah. I do benefit as well from the yeah there again. So I enjoy it as well. True. <laughs> All right, Avery. What is your essential product? So lately, I would also say mine came about not that long ago, but something that I use daily now would be my Kindle, mm-hmm. because. We have our reading goal and I just have always been more of a book person. Like I didn't think like I a would. physical copy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like being able to like feel it and like turn the pages. Like, I don't know. I just have always preferred a hard copy mm-hmm. and I don't know. So I was a little bit nervous about liking the Kindle, but now that I have it. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. The reading in bed situation is a game changer because that is so hard to do with a regular book. But the Kindle, like you can lay it any direction and it works perfectly. It's lightweight Mm -hmm. and it's nice. Easy to travel. Yeah, you can take it anywhere and you can have all your books on it instead of having to pack like three books. Yeah, and we share like our profiles are synced so we can have each other's books on there. Yep. And yeah. I've had a Kindle since seventh grade, so <laughs> I really love them. I've had it for, like, majority of my reading life. Well, I guess not my – well, yeah, that is a majority. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. no, they're amazing. And I also recently found out if you have PDFs of things, you can email them to your Kindle. Like, every Kindle has its own email address. You just have to look for it, look for it on your Amazon account. And so if you have – textbooks or like something else you've downloaded that you need to read or anything along those lines sounds like an ad right now i know it does (laughs) but i'm just giving out this really cool tip because i figured it out and i wish i would have known about it i promise this isn't sponsored yeah if it was theragun amazon oh my gosh could you imagine (laughs) yeah oh my gosh we literally just gave shout outs to both these i mean they don't really need them they're big companies yeah everybody (laughs) Either but, wants a Kindle or knows about Kindle or knows about massage guns, I guess. Yeah, but so. <laughs> I wish. But yeah, so saying. Kindles have really cool purpose, like not just books. I like the PDF thing as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's my daily essential. Nice. It's really good. Everyone else should let us know what you guys, what your guys' uh, daily essential is. I like to get some ideas for things because some mm-hmm. people have some really interesting knickknacks. Yes. So TikTok is a good resource for finding things I never even knew existed. Yeah, so. there's so many random things. I'd love to hear from you guys. Yeah. Um, and if you want to follow the podcast, uh, Avery posts all the case sources and pictures and everything of all the podcasts we do. Today was more Reddit, so I'm not really sure what kind of post it would be because... 
not really any pictures or anything. Yeah, I don't have any that. pictures. Maybe I can look in the links or something, but I'll like kind of post pictures of the layout of everything, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to see that stuff or just follow our updates, you can go to at True Time Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And then Avery's personal side, which she posts TikToks and Instagram photos and stuff if you want to follow our personal lives. That is at Avery E. Hamill. So go check it out. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to a different kind of podcast. And we will be back next week with a new case. Sounds good. Bye, everybody. Goodbye, everyone.